Welcome to the Benefits Compliance Podcast. My name is Chase Cannon. I'm joined today, as always, by Suzanne Spradley. We are both attorneys with NFP's Benefits Compliance and Legal Team, and we're here on this podcast to break down uh, some of the ACA repeal and replace efforts put forth by the Republican Party. Uh, we like to throw in a little bit of history. It's a little bit of the law, and we like to have a lot of fun with it and hope you enjoy it as well. So today we're going to focus on two aspects of the GOP proposal that are of interest to our clients, um, the employer mandate and individual mandate penalty um, repeal along with the replacement. But we're going to start off with the repeal part of that. And in order to understand the repeal part, we need a history lesson or a government lesson from Suzanne on what's the process for repeal. Right. So it is more of a government lesson than history and, and something that many people have been hearing daily in the news. And we've certainly discussed on the podcast, but it helps set the table or set, set uh, give us a starting place for um, the discussion. So the Republicans must use the budget reconciliation process to move the repeal through the Senate because they won't likely have bipartisan support. And the reconciliation process only requires 51 votes for a simple majority instead of the standard 60 votes. Um, the process starts in the House with a budget resolution, and the budget resolution actually includes instructions that are sent to committees with jurisdiction over the matter. Um, the, the committees are then tasked with drafting recommendations that are sent back to the budget committee, which compiles it into one reconciliation package. In, in this case, the two committees at issue are the House Ways and Means Committee and the Energy and Commerce Committee. Uh, the Ways and Means Health Subcommittee, they both have a subcommittee on health. The Health Subcommittee's jurisdiction relates to programs that provide payments for health care, health delivery systems, health research. Um, specifically, the Ways and Means Committee recommended the repeal of the individual mandate and the employer mandate. They also recommended repeal of a number of taxes, for example, um, such as the medical device tax and the prescription drug tax. The Energy and Commerce Committee, on the other hand, their jurisdiction is really primarily over the Medicaid system. And so you will see the repeal and replacement for Medicaid um, expansion under their recommendations and funding for state innovation grants and so forth. Um, but we're going to focus today on the House Ways and Means Committees. So the process is that both committees voted their recommendations out and they were then sent to the Budget Committee, which then actually approved the package last Thursday, which was March 16th, to put it in timing context and for this podcast. Um, so the package will now go before the Rules Committee and then on to the House floor for an up or down vote. Assuming that it gets out of the House, it will then be sent to the Senate to begin to work through their reconciliation process. So hopefully the goal is actually for the Senate to vote on it uh, before they break for spring recess that is tentatively scheduled right now for April 7th. So that's the time frame and the process that we're, they're working through right now. Very interesting. So we, we discovered this as we were writing up our um, news article and news flash about the GOP replacement that had been introduced. And I didn't realize that it came out in those two different committees. And so we were actually looking through two different pieces of legislation, one focused heavily on Medicaid, the other focused heavily on the more health-related items that we deal with um, in the insurance world. And so I didn't realize that's, that's the reason why they're coming from these two subcommittees. So for our clients, though, um, employers, 
they're going to be excited about the employer mandate repeal, or at least the repeal of the penalties associated with that. So let's start with that, Suzanne. Okay, so as, as part of that reconciliation process, they have the Senate is bound by, by what's called the Bird Rule, which may be invoked by a senator if they believe there's a provision in a bill that, that is extraneous. It's an extraneous matter, or it is merely incidental to the federal budget. Um, it's then sent to the parliamentarian to make a judgment call, and the, ju the parliamentarian can say that a certain provision is outside the bounds of, of the reconciliation process and has to be removed from the bill. So something that's going to be interesting to watch is that um, the true process is the parliamentarian actually makes a recommendation to, to the presiding office, officer of the Senate. Um, that is technically the vice president because they are the president of the Senate. And obviously the vice president currently is a Republican. He could effectively overrule the parliamentarian in favor of including um, a whole host of provisions in the reconciliation process. Most experts don't think that the Republicans will take that approach because it would fundamentally alter the way the Senate has been working for years. But you will see that there is a loud voice from Ted Cruz um, pushing for that approach to say we, we need to do whatever is possible to get this pushed through the Senate and to get it taken care of. Um, but again, they've got to be careful because any, if they push that process um, in that manner, it's going to change how the Senate works in the future. So either party will have far wider latitude to, in the future to avoid a 60-vote uh, threshold um, uh, vote. And so if we think of it back, to, if we go now back to the employer mandate, in the GOP proposal, you will see that only the penalties themselves were repealed. So the, the mandate itself actually remains on the books, but the penalty was zeroed out. So it's not the perfect process, not something that we would like to see if we want it completely removed. But we can certainly expect that our lobbyists in um, Washington will approach the IRS and seek written guidance um, stating that they won't enforce the mandate. And we would assume the IRS would provide it given that they will you know, they're under the uh, the GOP administration. So again, not a perfect solution because the law would remain in place. Um, I will say that G the GOP is planning on having additional legislation in the future. They would certainly like to, to think that they could have a bipartisan approach to other changes um, once they have this repeal in place, but that remains to be seen. Right, it's an interesting idea on the, the whole idea of precedence and not, not setting a precedent that the other party could use to their advantage in the future, especially looking back at the sort of the origins of the ACA, which was passed under the same reconciliation uh, process. So we're seeing sort of a, a, a revamp of what happened before, and Republicans need to be careful not to set a new standard that would open up wider doors for Democrats in the future. So um, without the employer mandate penalties, does that mean the employer reporting is gone as well? Well, unfortunately, no. The reporting is remains because, again, of the bird rule that uh, it could not be brought into the reconciliation process. Um, so we will likely see some form of reporting continue. Now, it, that could likely be modified, certainly something that's going to be easier to administer. But let's think of it this way. As long as there's tax credits that are tied or the tax credit eligibility that's tied to an in individual not having employer-sponsored coverage, you're going to the employers are going to have to report into the government. But it's important for the for this to to continue. What we don't want is that an individual can decide to withdraw from employer-sponsored coverage, go to the individual market because they have the incentive of a tax credit, buy coverage there instead. Um, what we would likely find is that would be 
the individuals that would likely to be go into the individual market would be the younger individuals. Part of the GOP proposal that we that is in the current proposal and that we'll likely see in any future proposal is the expansion of the age band. Right now it's three to one. It would go to five to one, meaning that the older individuals um, can't be charged more than five times as much as the younger individuals. What the three to one age band did is it, it compressed the pricing and it brought prices up for the younger individuals, brought them down for the older. So you will see with a five to one age band um, prices dropping for the younger individuals. So those are the individuals that would be enticed to go into the individual market because of lower prices, certainly if they had a tax credit. By making them ineligible if they have employer-sponsored coverage, you're likely to keep them in the employer-sponsored market which is important. You don't want you don't want to be employers don't want to be left with old, only the older um, generation being covered by their coverage, and so think of the reporting as an important extension of that policy. So, the current GOP proposal actually adds a new form of reporting. It's a, it's a mechanism on the W-2 where they'll check a box that shows that an individual was covered by employer-sponsored coverage for certain months. Certainly a much easier approach than the approach that's uh, currently in place. And what they're hoping is that even though the old form of reporting remains on the books, now that they would have a new form of reporting, um, the old form becomes duplicative. So the hope is that you know there's now this redundancy. And so either there'll be more of a reason for a bipartisan approach through legislation, or because of uh, Trump's executive order, that ordered agencies to take all actions to minimize unwarranted regulatory burden, the IRS would now have an incentive to minimize that reporting as well. So the hope is that now we've got an alternative, the old reporting is now duplicative, we can do away with it in some manner. Um, also, I just, I would be, you know, I, I must also include that there's some additional reporting that's included in the GOP proposal that relates to unsubsidized COBRA coverage. So another type of individual who's eligible for those tax credits in the GOP proposal is our individuals who have unsubsidized COBRA coverage. So anyone who provides that has to report into the government. Um, what's interesting is there were no details really on what's considered unsubsidized. So I question, you know, could you could you give an individual a dollar towards their coverage and now be considered subsidized and no longer have a reporting requirement? That remains to be seen. Um, so, but there may be this additional reporting that's required. Right. So, but even with that additional reporting for unsubsidized COBRA, still a much more streamlined version of the reporting, maybe get rid of some of these uh, uh, difficult codes on 1095C, 1094C. Right. These have been a struggle for employers over the past few years. So a check the box approach on Form W-2 for most employers, um, I think that's probably good news. Oh, absolutely. It has absolutely been um, by, for, uh, by far the most administrative burden coming out of the ACA for employers. Right. Okay, so that gets us a, a long way down the road with the employer mandate. Let's talk about the individual mandate. So it's very much the same issue in that the individual mandate penalties could be repealed through the reconciliation process, but the law remains on the book. Um, now, the removing the individual mandate is a much bigger issue than removing the employer mandate when it comes to the carriers. If you think of the reason that the individual mandate was put into place, it was to counterbalance the elimination of medical underwriting for the carriers, um, meaning the way that, that insurance products were typically priced was when you went to buy a product, they could look at your health status and price accordingly. 
Um, in addition, the carriers were prohibited for, from excluding any type of pre-existing condition. So when you have those two things combined, you have individuals being able to go to a carrier, them having to issue a policy not based on their health status, which obviously creates a great risk for the carriers. So they had the mandate to bring not only more individuals into the risk pool to spread that risk and to minimize the potential for adverse selection, um, but also make it so that individuals were buying cover not just when they were sick, but because they had to, to keep it, you know, they had to maintain it at all times or be penalized. Right. So. The repeal legislation not get rid of the individual mandate penalty, uh, but it doesn't get rid of the pre-existing condition exclusion prohibitions or the limits on medical underwriting. So carriers can't be too happy about that, can they? No, and and uh, you know there's certainly I'm sure the GOP is working with carriers that again is a is a result of the the bird rule and the reconciliation process. Those are types of provisions that would not be it would be considered extraneous matters and likely be. Um, uh, not be able to pass a bird rule challenge. And so in order to counterbalance, again, um, the idea of keeping those two things in place, the GOP's new counterbalance is this penalty for anyone who doesn't maintain continuous coverage. Again, the idea is trying to, to provide incentive for individuals to keep that coverage once they have it. Um, the penalty is a hike of 30% on premiums, and it's actually paid to the carriers rather than the government. So again, it goes to the carriers to help um, to help uh, counterbalance the, the issues of having to take people in without being able to rate on their health status and without being able to exclude uh, pre-existing conditions. So the way it works is if an individual goes to a carrier, they want to buy coverage, the carrier in the individual or small group market can look back 12 months. And if that individual hasn't maintained uh, 63 or more days of coverage, then they can apply that 30 percent uh, penalty or increase in premium cost. Um, so again, the idea is there's hopefully an incentive there for an individual to keep their insurance. I ran some numbers, and actually in many cases that 30% penalty is a greater cost burden for the individual. So the hope is that people would understand um, the cost burden associated with that penalty and not drop their coverage. So if it works as intended, again, we have those healthy young individuals staying in the market helping to counterbalance the effects of uh, potential adverse selection. However, the downside is that if an individual does drop their coverage and their penalty is now going to be applied to their premium costs, they have a disincentive to re-enroll. So you have those, you know, the most likely individual to want to drop their coverage are the young, healthy, and those on a tight budget. So they're going to have uh, an even greater disincentive to not buy coverage a second time. So um, there are certainly some pros and cons to this approach. I mean, the GOP proposal won't penalize you if you don't, if you don't buy coverage but it will penalize you if you choose to re-enter the market after a, a coverage gap. Very interesting. So just so I understand correctly, how long can an insurer, like what's the duration that they can apply that 30% premium? Is it for, if I decide to re-enroll in coverage and I have this gap over the last 12 months, they can indefinitely apply this 30% premium? There's no details on that. Presumably what could happen is that you re-enroll, you, you have coverage, as long as you have coverage for tw you know, a 12-month span, then at that point you could choose uh, to try to get new coverage and you would not have that 30% that um, penalty applied. There's no details on that yet, so we don't know, but it, I don't think it would be indefinite like it is with Medicare, for example, if you have a late enrollment there. I think that you could probably, an individual could probably play that market a bit and be able to, after a 12-month span, be able to enroll without that 30% penalty. 
Right, makes sense. Um, so Suzanne, what's your prognosis here on all of this relating to the individual and employer mandates, penalties, and the reconciliation process? What's the chance of all this passing? Well, it's um, from the standpoint of passing, it's going to be a challenge because uh, we've got the Freedom Caucus in the House that really is pushing back, wanting, having wanted a, a much stronger repeal um, bill than than there is. They they consider this uh, Obamacare light. And so it remains to be seen whether they have the votes to get it past the House. Of course, it has to get out of the House before it gets to the Senate. Um, and then again, they're going to be up against some challenges there. But if we look at the individual mandate or this, this new approach of continuous coverage penalty, what's really going to be interesting to watch, at least interesting from you know, a, a nerdy attorney's viewpoint, is if you think back to, here, here's our history lesson again. Um, if you think back to the individual mandate, it was challenged, and the, the court case went all the way up to the Supreme Court, and it was challenged on being as being unconstitutional because Congress could not force an individual to buy insurance in the private market. And the Supreme Court characterized it as a tax, which meant it was therefore constitutional because Congress does have the authority clearly to impose a tax. But in the court's discussion, Justice Roberts specifically rejected the government's argument that the mandate was constitutional under the Commerce Clause authority. So a key takeaway from that case was that Congress had no right to force people to buy insurance in the private market, but it did have a right to tax them. If you think now of the structure of the continuous coverage penalty, it is paid into carriers. So clearly it can't be characterized as a tax. So I, I can imagine some challenges occurring, um, challenging that it's not constitutional under the Commerce Clause. So I think we'll see um, uh, you know, a, a reiteration of what we saw previously in terms of, um, of legal challenges if this is imposed. Right. So even if it does go through potentially rocky road ahead if with uh, legal challenges. So very interesting. Thanks again, Suzanne, for uh, providing all that information. It's always good to pick your brain and learn from you. Um, and as we like to say in the Benefits Compliance Podcast, it's a wrap. wrap. Thanks for joining us, and we'll uh, talk to you next time.